If you have your Bibles, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we are beginning a new chapter. We're going to read the scripture and then we will pray one more time. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 3 today. This is what the word of the living God says. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifest that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Let's pray. Father, Lord... We are so glad for the new covenant. Lord, we are so glad for the work of your Son. Lord, that has redeemed us, that has called us out of the world, made us a new people in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would show us just how magnificent this covenant is. As we look at this chapter, Lord, in the coming weeks, Lord willing, Father, I pray that you would show us what Paul meant when he spoke of the surpassing glory of this covenant. And Father, we just pray for your blessing on our time. Give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak, Lord. Help us, Father, to discern your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are starting uh, chapter 3, which is really a chapter all about the new covenant and uh, specifically not just the new covenant in it by itself, but the new covenant in the context of ministry, which is really unique if you think about it. But Paul is using this as an occasion to show them what new covenant ministry looks like because as we know from chapter 1 up to this point, that Paul has faced certain challenges in ministering to the church of Corinth. And in doing so, he has belabored the point that he was not being double-minded, that he, when he changes travel plans, he was not vacillating, he was not flippantly changing his mind, but he did so out of necessity, not out of desire. Not out of a desire to trip them up or to neglect them in any way, but out of necessity and because he did not want to come to them by, and cause them sorrow again. And so he commends his ministry to them by insisting that God, in essence, was the one who had fitted him for this ministry, that they need not undermine the ministry. And this was a challenge because in Corinth, Paul has opponents. In Corinth, he has those that are opposing him. He has those that are uh, uh, objecting either to his doctrine or to his manner or both. And so here, he takes advantage of this to talk about the nature of his ministry in light of the new covenant. Now, I want to show you by this passage that the new covenant is a work of the Spirit of God. And so... If I were to entitle this sermon anything, I'd entitle it The Indelible Work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. The Indelible Work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. It should not surprise us that the Spirit is present in talking about the New Covenant. After all, the Spirit plays a prominent role even in the prophecies about the New Covenant. 
Let me remind you of some of these, the more prominent ones like Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, obviously you know that classic New Covenant text that says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will submit to you that based on this passage, that is through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Also, Ezekiel chapter 11 Verse 19 through 20 says, I'll give them a new heart. I will put a new spirit within them. And I will take out their heart of stone and out uh, out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I will be their God. And then, making it more explicit, is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. He says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways or my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. So it's no surprise then to see Paul highlighting the work of the Spirit in the context of the new covenant. And I want to show you three things that he does in this passage, okay? His self-attesting work, his Christ-centered work, and his internal focus. So first is the work of the Spirit being self-attesting. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation for, for, or to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Now, Paul is going to tie this into the Spirit in a moment. But first, he wants to make sure that they understand that he does not need to reestablish relationships with them again. He doesn't need, as he says here, as some do. And what's interesting there is the sun. Was that a car that just flashed in the sky? Okay. Well, as long as they don't come on the stage, we'll be okay, I guess. But uh, let's see if I can focus after that. (laughs) That's okay, Aaron. Uh, but uh, it, it, this is important because it, it, it shows how the Apostle Paul is connected to this church and refuses to break ties with this church. He doesn't need any letters of commendation. He doesn't need to be commended to them again. And he says that by this rhetorical question. Do we need letters again? He says, well, he doesn't say this, but the rhetorical second class condition is no. He does not. Emphatically, he does not need letters. Now, I want to also tell you that in the Bible, letters of commendation were also common. They were used. They were normal practice. You can see that in Acts chapter 15, verses 25 and 27. Also, Acts chapter 18, verse 27. There are letters of recommendation or commendation right there. And as a matter of fact, Paul himself, look over in the next chapter, he will, he will seem to contradict this. He says in verse 2, 
But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And he'll go on to say in chapter 6, verse 4, that he in everything commends himself to them as, their serv- as a servant of God. So what gives here? On the one hand, he's saying we don't need any commendation. On the other hand, he's saying we commend ourselves to everybody. And what's at work here is that there is one type of commendation, and that is the commendation that comes from man, that is based from man's authority. And that is what Paul is rejecting here. He doesn't need any external attestation to his ministry. He doesn't need the Jerusalem church. He doesn't need the churches of Judea, for example, to confirm his ministry. You remember what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. After his conversion, he said, look, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. I didn't go up to the apostles, but I spent some years in Arabia. And then in chapter 2, he says, look, I am not inferior to the most eminent apostles. But he said, I also willfully presented my gospel. What's he saying there? Paul's saying, look, I am not inferior, but I'm also not insubordinate. I'm not trying to rebel against the other apostles, but I'm also not in subjection to them. I'm not inferior to them. I am not at their whim. I am not, my authority didn't come from them. Because earlier in Galatians chapter 1, he says, his gospel came not from man nor through man, but from God. And so Paul does not need to be commended in in that way, but he does commend himself in a way that is good for the church. Look over at chapter 5, for example. This commendation that he's trying to give is actually for their good. Chapter 5, verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us or to boast so that you will have an answer for those that take pride in appearance and not in heart. And there, the word heart is something like character, virtue. That's what he's talking about. And there are those people that take pride in only external things, like the Judaizers who pride themselves in external works, external performances, legalism, circumcision, and those types of things. He's saying, no, what we say to you, we are saying to you so that if anything, we're commending ourselves in such a way that you'll be able to boast in their apostolic ministry. That's what he's doing. Paul was is commending his ministry to them so that they'll be able to glory in the work that God had done through Paul because it led to a life of obedience. The work of the Spirit through Paul is so evident, therefore, that he doesn't need to reestablish relationships with them again. Because of the work of the Spirit, he saw that the door of their heart should remain open to Him. They should not shut their heart up to them anymore. The Spirit had so authenticated His ministry that He didn't need any church or any man to attest to that ministry. He didn't need anybody to come along and say, yep, the Apostles' ministry is a good ministry. It's sound. It is biblical. It's rooted in the Gospel. No, the Spirit has done its work 
so that he doesn't need letters either for them or from them. He doesn't need any letters for, from other people to commend him to them, nor does he need letters from them to others. Paul's ministry, in other words, is absolutely trustworthy. Trustworthy. And it's amazing how he roots that trustworthiness in the nature of New Covenant ministry, as we'll go on to see. But you know, this brought me to a point of what true ministry is. Because obviously we want to have a true ministry. I want to have a true ministry. I want to have a legitimate pastoral ministry. And I think, boy, there's so much to learn here to know that a true minister, in one sense, doesn't need anybody else's attestation. It will speak for itself, in other words. The work will just speak for itself. You can see this on another individual level when Paul talks about Timothy. Philippians chapter 2, verse 22, he tells the Philippians there, look, you have known of his proven character, his proven worth, that nobody else had a kindred spirit like Timothy with Paul. That no one else cared for the church the way that Paul did. In other words, Timothy's ministry is also self-evident. It is clear. It is reliable. And you know what? That is the way that true ministry works. Timothy was Paul's assistant. Timothy was Paul's protege, his child in the faith. He was the one that would come and assist Paul, care for the churches of God with Paul, labor with Paul, suffer with Paul. And as a matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, or verse 1, he says, listen, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. And as a good soldier, he did not need to be commended again. His fruit, in other words, spoke for itself because he was such a tremendous asset to Paul. You know, that's the way that pastors are made. Any pastor or would-be pastor will be a tremendous asset to some other pastor. And if you're not a tremendous asset to another pastor in another church, in some sort of context, then you are probably not going to just wake up one day and become a pastor. No, your, your character will be proven. It will speak for himself. The church will verify it. The church will attest to it and say, oh yeah, this brother, yes, of course, he's already been doing that. He's already acting as a pastor. He's already fulfilling that ministry. We've already thought of him in those ways. Paul doesn't need to create a pastor. God creates the pastor. The church simply affirms him. But there's still a deeper principle, and that is that for Paul, what he cared about more than anybody commending him or seeking commendation from him is that he would be commended by God. 2 Corinthians 10.18, listen to what he says. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. That's the only commendation that matters. That's the only reputation that a true pastor ought to desire to have, is do I have the approval of God? Who cares what other people are saying about me? Because you know what? Once you enter the ministry, oh, let me tell you, once you get into that ministry position, that spotlight position, that fishbowl of ministry, people will be your, your, not only your, your, your best proponent, but your greatest critics too. Look at the life of Jesus. In just a couple chapters, they went from Hosanna, Hosanna. Here comes the one and the, the king, Right? He, he comes in the name of the Lord. Those same people, my friends, in a very short while, were shouting, crucify Him, 
Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and upon our children. No, the only thing that matters at the end of the day is that you have a ministry that is approved by God. Let your praise come from God, not from man. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to have his ministry approved of God and not of man. But there is also another affirmation of his ministry that it was universal. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, you are our letter. It's apostolic in that it is written on our hearts, Paul says. He says, it's known and it is read by all men. When those two words work together, known and read, uh, the Greek, the history of the Greek construction there suggests something like it is recognized. It is recognized. That's the way it appears in antiquity. It is something recognizable by all people, everywhere. People know the work that God had done through the apostles. They were a letter. That's all the letter he needed was the letter that they were in their own existence by virtue of their own faith, by virtue of their obedience. That's all the recommendation Paul needed. Look, you yourselves are the letter. You've been taken out of a pagan world. You've been taken out of your pagan ways. And now you've become obedient to the pattern of life that they had heard from him. They'd become obedient to that form of doctrine, as he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 17. And that's all the evidence that Paul needed. It was self-evident. He says, you are a letter written on our hearts. Oh, Paul had such a heart for the churches. The church's life was inscribed on the heart of the apostle. That's what kind of minister he was. He cared so much, brothers and sisters, for the purity of the church, for the longevity of the church, for the survival of the church, for the protection of the church, for the orthodoxy of the church. He cared so much that the church wouldn't go astray. They were like his dear children. 1 Corinthians 4.15 I became your father through the gospel. I became your father. He had fathered them, meaning he, through his ministry, through his preaching, he gave birth to them. They, they owed his or, their origin to his preaching, his ministry. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 2, he goes on to say that they are the very seal of his apostleship. They're the seal of it. They're the ultimate stamp of approval of his work. It's self-evident. It is self-evident. The Spirit had done such a job here of uniting Paul's heart with their hearts that, that, they, that they bore the mark of his handiwork. But he was also concerned to join them to the one to whom they ultimately belong, which was Christ. And that is the second work of the Spirit here. That the work of the Spirit is also Christ-centered. Christ-centered. Look at, look at the beginning there, verse 3. He says, well, let's read, the, let's read it through because it's kind of a hard break. You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us. 
when the Spirit does a work in the life of a people, He inextricably unites them to Jesus Christ. He sends them in a Christ-word direction, showing the church here that their ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ, that their ultimate ownership is under Jesus Christ, that Christ is the ultimate author of their letter, to keep the letter motif going here. Jesus is the one that picked up the pen to write the story of the Corinthians. They are under His divine origin. Yes, written on the hearts of the apostles, but ultimately they are a letter of Christ. They belong to Him. They belong to Him. Therefore, Paul saw himself as merely an agent. He wasn't the author. Paul was an amanuensis. You know what an amanuensis is? It's a secretary, right? Everybody whipping out their dictionary on their app or something. But an amanuensis is like a scribe. It's somebody that, to whom you dictate something. It's, it's, it's a secretary in our common vernacular. Paul was that secretary. God was telling him what to write. Christ was telling him. Christ was dictating to the Apostle Paul what to tell the churches. And so he understood his role. He saw ultimately that it was nothing but a servant. Nothing but a servant. And this fits the theology of the Apostle Paul everywhere. Let me just kind of show you this. You remember chapter 1, verse 24? This is exactly what he says. He says, not that we lord it over you. He doesn't lord his apostolic authority over them, but he says instead, but we are workers with you for your joy. For in your faith you are standing firm. That's what the Apostle Paul That's what his aim was in all ministry, to be a worker with you for your joy. And that is what all oversight is. That is what all shepherding is about. That is what all spiritual authority is for. It's for a coming alongside of you, not on top of you, squishing you down and pushing you down and looking down your nose and saying, oh, look how ungodly you are and look how unsanctified you are and look how... No. We have to, we are workers. I am a worker with you for your joy. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, What is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Just slaves. The word is doulos. In chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Let a man regard us in this way. We are servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. Just a steward. Just a maintenance man. Just taking care of that which has been entrusted to him. It doesn't belong to him. He has the treasure in earthen vessels. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he makes this very apparent when he says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. And ourselves as your bond servants. That's uh, three words for one Greek word, again, doulos. Right? And John MacArthur has done a great job. He wrote a whole book showing that most English translations refuse to translate the word doulos, which just simply means slave, because of the obvious controversial connotations that are attached with the word. But that's what the word says. 
That's what the word is. And listen, listen, there was slavery in the time of Paul. There was slavery everywhere. The Jews had a context of slavery, right? 400 years in Egypt. And Paul is saying, look, I am a slave to the church for the sake of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verse 19, you want to talk about an exhaustive description of this. You want to talk about the Apostle Paul here being absolutely selfless, absolutely emptied of himself. He speaks these incredible, unthinkable, impossible words. 1 Corinthians 9.19 I have made myself a slave to everyone. To all. He was a slave to all. He saw the world as his master in the gospel, if you would. He was a slave. He was a servant to everyone. And he was there to serve them with the gospel. What a humble minister. Here, back in 2 Corinthians, listen, Paul was laboring to present Christ before them, to produce maturity in them, to promote unity with them, to create discernment among them, and to manifest the knowledge of Christ through them, that is, through their continuing and abiding obedience to the faith. That is, after all, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 7, the whole purpose for their existence. What was the point of Christ's letter? What was the point of the, of the what's, what was the authorial intent when Christ wrote the Corinthian letter, if you would? Obedience to the faith. Obedience of faith. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a life of obedience. It's a life of obedience. It's not a life of independence. It's not a life of absolute autonomous rights of your own. It's not a life of free thinking. It's not a life where your opinion reigns supreme. It's not a life of skepticism. It's not a life of agnosticism. It's not a life of self. It's a selfless life. Jesus said, if you'd follow me, you'd pick up your cross, deny yourself. He who would save his life will lose it for my name's sake. The one who wants to try to save his life, he will lose it. And the one who loses it for his name's sake, he will keep it for eternal life. What a selfless minister the Apostle Paul was. Lastly, the end there, verse 3 Not only do we have the work of the Spirit in such a way that He points them to Christ, but He also, the work of the Spirit is also primarily internal. Look at the last part of verse 3. He says, written not with ink. This is talking about Christ's letter. What's the nature of Christ's letter? Following, continuing this this, this metaphor. He says, it's written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The Apostle Paul is doing a lot of things here. He is summing up this sort of this letter metaphor, but he's also now opening the gate, opening the doorway to yet another illustration, another example that he wants to bring about the new covenant, as we'll see. But first, he begins by saying, look, this letter is a permanent one. Now, it's interesting as the 
theology here of the New Covenant develops. You know that when you talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you're talking about issues of continuity and discontinuity. How much carries over and how much discontinues. Those are very tricky theological things. Those are thorny, thorny issues at times. But here, he's highlighting a major point of discontinuity. Because under the Old Covenant, God's people were defined by covenant membership based on birth, based on ethnicity, based on receiving the covenant sign of circumcision. All of these things were external. All of these things were temporal, physical. But now he's saying the new covenant doesn't work like that. The new covenant is first internal. It is a work of the spirit of the living God. It is through regeneration. That's how it comes. It works through regeneration. That is how the people of God are constituted today. It's all internal. You can't be born into the church. You've got to be born again. To be in the church. It's a spiritual phenomena that is taking place. And he doesn't just talk about the instrument of writing, but he also talks about the objects upon which this letter is written. And here he transitions a bit away from the letter and to something else when he refers to tablets. This word uh, that he uses is the word that is used in the Septuagint for the tablets of stone, for example, that Moses used when he wrote, or when God wrote the law with his finger. It's an amazing thing what Paul is doing here. He quotes from Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, especially if you look at the Septuagint like I did, the parallels are amazing. He's using this exact phrase when he uses the word, when he specifies that the law, for example, in Exodus 31, verse 18, he says the law was written by the finger of God on tablets of stone. Here, Paul applies this amazing language, this monumental language to the work of the Spirit, saying that the writing of verse 31 is now the writing of 2 Corinthians, but it is not the writing of the finger of God anymore. It is the writing of the Spirit of God, and it's no longer written on tablets of stone. It is, it's written on the tablets of human hearts. Everything has been internalized, is what he's saying. He borrows from another Old Testament passage, Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel 36. We looked at this at the very beginning. He uses the language again of a stony heart versus a fleshly heart. That is an insensitive heart versus a sensitive heart. You know that that is the difference in regeneration? When God causes you to be born again, He takes away your insensitive heart, the heart that you had since the day you were born. Since the day you were born, you had a heart of stone, stubborn, hard, not pliable, not moldable, not flexible, not sensitive to God's commands. And so what Ezekiel is saying is that God will take out that heart. He'll give you a different heart. He'll give you a heart of flesh, one that is moldable and pliable and sensitive and responsive to the commands of God. In Ezekiel 36, as we saw, again, 
He uses the same language this time by saying, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And I just think of that word, cause you to walk in my statutes. You know that when God actually regenerates a person, obedience is the natural outcome. Just like when a baby is born, it cries, right? Born, cries, right? Christian, born again, you obey. It just flows out of your new nature. You have a liberated nature, a liberated will. You had a fallen will, a bound will, a will that was, that was subject to slavery of sin. Like Jesus said, the one who sins is a slave of sin. It's actually, when you sin, it's actually symptomatic of a greater condition. That you are in bondage to a master of sin. God liberates our wills, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, so that we can now begin to present, as Paul says in Romans 6, present your your members as instruments of righteousness, no longer instruments of unrighteousness, slaves of God instead of slaves of sin. What an amazing thing. If there were any Judaizers in Corinth, and surely they were, Paul's argument was indeed weighty and it was forceful. The Judaizers can be seen all over Paul's letters, right? You see them in Galatia. You see elements of them in, uh, in Colossae. You see them in Corinth. You see them in Philippi. You see them all over the Roman world piggybacking on the work of the apostles and trying to bring the Mosaic law, the Mosaic economy back. Acts 15, 5 says that they were those who actually believed in Jesus, but the only problem was they were trying to bring them back under the law. Back under the law. They they would insist, for example, from Galatians chapter 4, that they observe days They insisted that you keep the Sabbath, for example, which Colossians 2 rejects. They insisted in keeping feasts and new moons, dietary laws, circumcision, and other Jewish customs that would solidify your justification. And Paul would say, no, you are not under law, but you are under grace. John MacArthur pointed out in his commentary very well that being under grace does not equal antinomianism either. Remarkably, when God frees you and takes you from out under the law, he frees you to obey the law. It's amazing. We naturally keep the law of God now because it is our very heart to do it. We love God's law. It's written on our hearts. Nobody has to force you not to steal. As I mentioned before, the new covenant takes us a bit further than that, doesn't it? The law of Christ goes further in that it says, not only don't steal, but be generous. Not only don't commit adultery, but love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not only do not take the Lord's name in vain, but bless the Lord, praise the Lord with every breath. So then, what Paul is saying here is that the beauty of the new covenant is what he was laboring to show them. He was showing them that by the new covenant, all of the types and the shadows were now fulfilled in the substance which is 
Christ and to return back to those things and to try to relate to God once again through circumcision was to return, as he says in Galatians 4.9, to the elementary worthless principles of the world. In other words, man-made religion. You know that there is only two kinds of religion in the world, right? You say, well, there are thousands of religions. Last time I checked. No, there's actually only two. There's God's religion and there's man's religion. There's either the religion of the true and living God as a result of the spirit of the living God, or there's the religion of man, which Paul calls worthless, beggarly, elementary principles, the elementary teachings of the world. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the world cannot, through its wisdom, the wisdom that it has, Socrates, Plato, Thales, Parmenides, right? Go down the list, right? Hegel, uh, David Hume, Immanuel Kant. You go through the list of all Paul Sartre. You go through all the different philosophers. They never knew God. That's what Paul says. Never knew God. doesn't matter how smart you are. All the philosophers, put them in a big room, let them stay there until they're dead. And they will never figure out who God is and how to get to God, and they will never come to know God because that's not how you come to know God. You come to know God through the Spirit's work of regenerating the heart, going from death to life. It's supernatural. It's, it's, you know, it's perplexing, but it's also liberating to know I can't produce the new birth. Yeah, I can have an altar call right now, right, and have people come up here and pray a 30-second prayer. I can manip- I used to do that early on as a Christian. I manipulate you to pray a quick prayer. Quick, come on and pray with me. Just repeat after me. You're saved. No, you're not. You've been manipulated. You've been deceived. Anybody can do that. Any pagan that hates God can pray a literal 30-second desperate prayer that means nothing. But when God changes and transforms your heart, it will be the natural flow of your heart to love and to obey God. Wish I could go further into that direction. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray, and uh, we will end with a worship song. Well, Father, who is sufficient for these things, as we saw last week? Lord, the gospel is a gospel of life and death. And to one, it will be the aroma of death to death. It will confirm not only their spiritual deadness now, but their death through judgment later. But it's also an aroma of life to life for us, Lord, who are being saved by the power of God. It is a sweet aroma of the life of God, eternal life, the life of God in the soul of man. Lord, thank you that you have so caused us to see this life. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry of the Spirit that works so powerfully in our hearts, that transforms us, that renews us. Thank you for the ministry of the Spirit that causes us to obey where we could never obey on our own. Because as Paul told the Galatians, we need faith to work through love. We didn't have that principle before. All we had was moralism. All we had was a guilt trip. All we had was religiosity. 
All we had was tradition, but no true love. Father, thank you for writing your law on our hearts so that we may delight in it and delight in you, Lord. We bless you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen. Only a regenerate heart could actually pray that prayer, sing that song, and mean it. Romans chapter 6, I wanted to leave you with this verse. Romans six seventeen says, But thanks be to God that, through, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members of slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Amen. That's our prayer, that we would, the more we present ourselves to God's righteousness and His righteous ways, the more sanctification we will see in our lives, the more growth we'll see in our lives. God bless you. I pray that you have a wonderful day.